So Liam, I listened to your podcast last week. Great listen, but did you slyly add in an advert? What do you mean? Well, you started to talk about DyingScene.com, like how it's a great place to find all things punk, like news, tour dates, album reviews, and all that good stuff. But it sounded like DyingScene.com was sponsoring the podcast. Nah. I mean, the good people at DyingScene.com just kind of wanted to help out a new podcast. So in the spirit of the punk community, I thought I would uh, show them the same gratitude back. Uh, sounds like a sponsor to me. I don't think so. I mean, that would mean that Punks and Pubs has already sold out. Punks and Pub match? No? Anyone? Hello, my name is Liam Bird and welcome to episode four of the first Punks in Pubs of 2018. Happy New Year to you all. I all hope you had a good one and 2018 is starting off on the right foot. Um, myself, I'm not a big New Year's night fan. I feel like there's so much pressure to have fun. So I just kind of sat in with a dog and the girlfriend and had a pizza and watched Bright on Netflix and then a little NFL. Bright, my review, it's okay. <laughs> that's probably the best you're gonna get um anyway that's enough of my sad life let's talk about episode four where i had a nice cool beer with frank turner frank and i sat down in november just before a benefit show at the ulu in london for the nick alexander trust memorial concert more on how you can support that trust after this chat if you've ever had the delight of meeting and talking to Frank before, you will know he's a very warm and polite human being and will happily chat to you about pretty much anything. And that's exactly what we did. Um, we had a natter about all subject matters from our mutual love of no effects, black flag and meatloaf. Yes, meatloaf. Uh, we discuss all things 2018 from New Year's resolutions and hopes for album number seven, an album that he says will split opinions. Uh, I discover Frank's love for shit beer, my views, not his, and also talk about the success graft. We also discuss politics, in particular his uh, Guardian article from a couple of years back in which Frank got a lot of flack for. I also bring up an event that happened 10 years ago between me and Frank, uh, as well as some other chitty chat. Something I do have to bring up before we go into the chat, there is a slight problem with the audio in this episode. I've tried my best to rectify it, but... Sorry if it disturbs your listening at any point. As always, I will talk to you after the chat, but till then, enjoy episode four of Punks in Pubs with me and Mr. Frank Turner. And you can run, you can hide, you can bitch and you can whine But you'll never save your life When you meet death, be out of breath And say your piece of tea because you're tired It's bad for us, Sarton. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just, <laughs> just leave that. <laughs> I was just, I was, I was, I was thinking about my questions, and I didn't really hear what you said at the end. Then, what did you say? Oh, I was just talking about how society's being ruined by Twitter, yeah. um, uh, which I think is a reasonably incontestable statement, and certainly politics is. Um, and I think that 180 characters or whatever is that 140? It's going on now, isn't it? Yeah. Well, inflation. Uh, um, it, it's just a bad way of discussing politics, and we've reached this point where sort of like. 
uh, a hatred and anger have become the central currencies of, so, of certain forms of social media. And I think that that's a really bad situation for us to be in as a, as a polity. Um, but as we were discussing, Instagram seems to be much nicer. Yeah, let's, let's be positive. I suppose I'll introduce you. For people who don't know that voice, this is a man who's played over 2,000 shows worldwide, uh, has written over 150 songs, several top 40 albums, best-selling author, documentary film star, uh, <laughs> festival creator, and I think most importantly, 2010 Kerrang! winner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Frank Turner. Uh, uh, hi. That's what? actually, you know, I have to say that my favourite thing on my shelf at home, yeah. and it's next to the Kerrang! Award, is the Celebrity Mastermind award Which I won you won I won and that is that stands head and shoulders above anything else I've achieved in my on life on ACDC I, I made it I made it yeah. but the thing about it was all right, I, I was a scholarship kid when I was younger and um, the group of 15 kids and we were all in the same year at school and we're sort of still in touch with each other and they include some seriously rarefied intelligences you know you've got people who work for NASA people who are professors and this that and the other and all the rest of it and I'm the one who went off and got drunk and got tattoos and joined a band but I'm the one who fucking won Mastermind <laughs> and, and the very first people I told was them and, and, and they all went oh you fucker um, so it's, it's, it's an achievement that I'm proud of unless they go to space and then well, <laughs> I feel like that kind of tops. Yeah, none of them, as far as I'm aware, none of them have been to space okay. just yet. But one of them is definitely designing rocketry at the moment. So really? there's that. I love that. I didn't mention at the beginning. So this is going to go out in New Year. It's going to be my New Year's podcast. Okay. So Happy New Year. Uh, happy in, New Year. In November, whatever this is. Resolutions, do you do them? Um, I do. I mean, I, I have complicated feelings about New Year, New Year's as a sort of event because... Um, for a long time, my sort of take on it was just that it's oh, it's arbitrary and who gives a shit. And um, also, I have to say, and this is, there's not really any way of me saying, saying this without sounding like a bit of a dick, but I'm, <laughs> I, fuck it, we're here, yeah. we're, we're all friends. It's, it's just New Year's Eve itself is kind of like amateur hour for partying, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just kind of like, I've got one of my best friends runs a bar, and his theory is that he knows who his real friends are at 6pm on the 2nd of January. Because every <laughs> dickhead can go out on New Year's Eve, and every dickhead can keep drinking into the... Into, um, the new year but it's uh, into new year's day but it's the second of january is when when it's like sorts of the wheat from the chaff yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that i mean that's obviously a silly thing to say in its way but um having spent years of sort of being slightly down the whole thing it's fuck it it's a it's part of our culture it's a celebration and it's a moment to look back and take stock and i suppose if you want to to make resolutions um uh, i need to quit smoking um i uh, keep trying and failing. You're not on the e-cigarettes? So no, well, do... I've been thinking about moving across to e-cigarettes, actually. One of the things... Well, the, the problem with that is that I have this kind of part of myself conception that I should be able to just do it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's and somehow it's a sign of weakness to ask for help or whatever, which is bullshit in all areas of life, incidentally. But um, uh, it, I started smoking again when I was 32. Yeah. Which is seriously dumb. How many, how many do you smoke a day? Uh, about 15... 15, okay. So my mum was a 30-pack-a-day woman, and right. she just quit. Right. And she's never gone back. And she's even... She's a sadist because she keeps a pack of cigarettes in her purse. I think that's really smart. Okay. I think that's really <laughs> smart because yeah. one of the things about it is is that is that you can crack and buy a pack of cigarettes anywhere at any time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You can just go to a shop and buy a pack of cigarettes and a lighter. And... Um, and it, it almost... It's like if the only reason you're not smoking is because you're not actually physically holding a cigarette, then I think that you're 
philosophical approach to the problem is slightly askew. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's very smart. Uh, I read I read that Alan Carr book on stopping smoking, and it made me smoke more. <laughs> um, just because, because, right? He opens the book. Have you read it? Do you I haven't. No, I haven't. He opens with this sort of <laughs> this bold statement. He's like, "I'm going to present you with a watertight argument why no one should ever smoke again," which immediately set me thinking. Right, I'm going to find a hole in your argument. Um, do you <laughs> Challenge know I mean? me. Yeah, it just it, it really just put me on the wrong foot straight away and then I got to the end of the book and went well this is bollocks fuck off um, <laughs> smoking. Um, which makes me the idiot so what are you going to do I mean one of the things that people do do uh, is give up drink for yes. um, New Year's and you're a person who from your book and from your documentary mm. has been known to enjoy a drink yes have you ever tried that yeah I do every about once a year I'll do a dry tour yeah um, uh, and it, really not in a way that I'm trying to sort of show off about it particularly mm. it's just it's good for me and it sort of demonstrates an ability to control my behaviours I over the years also I mean this is a function of ageing I drink less than I used to um you know, I, I don't. I don't really hangovers are awful now, and yeah. I can't really be bothered with being either wasted or hungover twenty four hours a day anymore. That was kind of funny when I was in my twenties, and it just isn't funny anymore or dignified in any way. So, um, I'm happy that that's no longer a thing that I'd spend that much of my time doing. I mean, uh, you know, um, I had a wonderful thing actually. <clears throat> Um, in 2017, I did uh, my second tour with Jason Isbell. And Jason is dry because he was a catastrophic alcoholic. Um, but he doesn't, like, ban drinking on his tours. And just because of that and because he had his family with him on the road, he had his two-year-old daughter, Mercy, who's the cutest thing in the world, um, the atmosphere in the backstage was just really kind of adult. You know, you come off stage and sort of have a glass of wine yeah, and maybe a, a chat with someone and then go to bed you know nobody was ordering shots do you know what I mean and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it was actually lovely and, and like everybody in my band and crew had a bit of a moment of kind of going god this is great like we should do this um, I mean obviously like people kind of get hammered on tour occasionally but yeah. like it's not like it used to be I think because that's the other thing I think a lot of people think that um, uh, touring is like one endless stag do um, and, and, and it, the thing is nobody can sustain that forever no. nobody and, and why on earth would you want to exactly and I've been doing this for a long fucking time and I've done a lot of gigs and it's just like every now and again we'll do a tour with like a younger newer band and they're all just like Wah! get wasted and I don't want to take them away from them like cool enjoy your time with that but I'm like yeah no <laughs> I'm gonna have a glass of wine and go to bed. I woke up on a sofa in an unfamiliar house Surrounded by sleeping folks that I didn't know Failing to find my friends I decided that it was clearly time to go So I made my way out of the door as quietly as I could there was no one there I knew to say goodbye Squinting in the sadly sobering sunshine of a Sunday morning light Cause I started the night with all my friends and I ended up alone Oh yes, I started out so happy, now I'm hungover and down it was about then that I realised I was halfway through the best years of my life. Have you played shows on New Year's? I have. It's a it's a weird night to play shows. You get paid loads of money to play on New Year's Eve, and the shows are always not brilliant. Well, not always, but they can just be a bit awkward because 
the occasion's a bit diffuse somehow. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, I've DJed on New Year's Eve quite a few times, which is my favourite New Year's Eve DJing story is uh, my friend Chris McCormack, um, who used to be in Three Colours Red and now promotes uh, Camden Rocks and stuff like that. I was DJing with him at the Underworld in Camden a few years ago, and we were in the middle of a long, heated, drunken argument about uh, the two different versions of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. There's the five-minute version and the nine-minute version, and which one was superior. And we were behind the DJ booth, kind of shouting at each other, and somebody tapped us on the shoulder and said, um, it's three minutes past midnight. And Chris went, fuck, and hit this button, and all these balloons came out of the ceiling, and like sort of lights went off and everything, and there was no countdown or anything. And everybody who was dancing in the club sort of went, what? the fuck uh, so we kind of ruined New Year's Eve for everybody that night and what was the conclusion of Bad Oh, uh, the, well I mean he's wrong this, the 9 minute version is infinitely superior because this is probably isn't the coolest thing to admit on a punk podcast but one of my favourite people ever is Meatloaf it's the first gig I ever went to first really? album I ever bought and he's always had a special place in my heart because I just, I just love his music. It's such a. He, I think he's a genius. I think he's incredible. Did but, you go and check out his West? Well, not his, but the West End Battle of Hell West End I, uh, I performance. Didn't know, unfortunately, it was like a ninety-long uh, minute eighties MTV music video, and it wasn't like the script was shit. Yeah, but as a performance. Loved it. Amazing. I have two, I have two meatloaf stories that I have oh, to tell go for you. It. Um, One of them is that I once got thrown out of a karaoke bar in New York um, because I was several sheets to the wind. We'd just finished recording my third record, um, Poetry of the Deed, and I'd been sort of like not drinking and holding it together for the recording period in order to do my best work, and I was having a post-album celebration. And I was in a karaoke bar, and I was singing that out of hell, and the, the cut, the edits from the five to the nine happens right at the end of the song, so I was happily singing that out of hell, and then suddenly I realized it was a five-minute version, and I went, you fucking cunt, which, <laughs> into the microphone, which in America is, is a word that carries more weight, and the bouncer's dragged me off the stage and threw me out. Um, the other thing... About Were me, you singing as you were being dragged out? Like, yeah, just yeah, singing the rest of the... <laughs> singing the bit that they edited out. Yeah. Um, the other thing with Meatloaf for me, and this is a better but more embarrassing story, um, touring, you spend a lot of time sitting on tour buses and sometimes it's after the gig and you're driving in the night somewhere in America and you're having a few drinks with your mates and conversations kind of start that then get out of hand. And somebody raised an interesting point, which was, what do you reckon Meatloaf is doing right now? <laughs> And that's my question for you. What do you okay. reckon Meatloaf's doing right now? Uh, right now, I think he's probably eating something. That's but, a bit rude, but... Well, but, I mean, he might be. He might be getting a pedicure. He might He might be filling out a tax return. Uh, yeah. He might be at the beach. I like the idea that he's watching Fight Club and going, I want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this conversation started, and then over the course of a couple of hours of drinking whiskey on a bus with my bandmates, Nigel, my drummer, is a can program websites and stuff. We ended up buying the domain name whatismeatloafdoingrightnow.com um, and, and he built this little wiki thing whereby every time you went to the website it picked one of a we, we wrote out a series of selections and it would randomly pick one and present that as what he was doing right now and then the rest of us could spend our days adding to the list. Right, um, and it was so much fun because we, my favourite entry, which I came up with, was um, awkwardly deleting people he added on Facebook when he was high. Um, and, you know, just kind of going, oh... No. Um, uh, but yeah, so we entered all this stuff onto it. And we set it up, and the kind of word filtered out a bit. I didn't want to sort of hammer it on my own social media, but it, word spread a little bit. And then um, <laughs> um, he then tweeted about it. Uh, he tweeted a link Amazing. to it with the comment, oh, lots of things, <laughs> um, which was pretty cool. And then that was about two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago. And I 
the, the, the joke came and went and that was that. And then the other day I was walking down the street, my phone rang unknown number and it was somebody from like GoDaddy hosting or whatever who was like hi we've got a website of yours that you know it's expired and we want to know if you wanted to keep the domain name or whatever and, and I was like what, what are you talking about and he said the domain name is what is meatloaf doing right now dot com and the guy on the phone said is that the food or the singer <laughs> I was like the singer obviously um, but I then felt terribly embarrassed and uh, told him to let it go so it doesn't exist anymore but it did so someone buy that now and carry it on, and mm. so we all know yeah. what Milo was doing fun. right I now. Mean, it, was, it was good, and I'm glad that it sort of got a degree of endorsement from the man himself. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I love Milo. <laughs> <laughs> I just generally just think about Milo songs now. Yeah, yeah. So what is your favorite Milo song? I, it's a boring answer, but Battle of Hell. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, took the words out of my mouth. Is also, I mean, the whole of that album is just flawless. Yeah. From top to bottom. It's just phenomenal. And you know Todd Rundgren produced it, right? Yeah. yeah. And do, you, do you know the story? It's the E Street Band playing on it. No. It's the E Street Well, interestingly, it's the E Street Band minus Little Steven because he thought it was a stupid project. And so the guitarist that they got in for it was Nils Lofgren, who a few years later, when Little Steven quit the E Street Band, they hired Nils Lofgren because the rest of the band knew him from the Bat Out of Hell sessions. Um, and hilariously, Tom Rundgren, I was reading an interview with him one day and they're asking, because it sold, what, like 10 million copies yeah, or whatever it is. Ridiculous. And Tom Rundgren said, I still don't really get it. I thought we were just taking the piss out of Bruce. Um, <laughs> and, but it's funny, if you go back and listen to it again, it's immediately obvious it's the Eastery Band once you know that. It's called Punks and Pubs, and uh, the criticism I got from my first episode was that the first guest I had was Pat Fettick, and he doesn't drink. So Fair enough. I'm, I'm, we are both drinking beers. When we are unfortunately not in a pub, we are not. But we are we're, we're backstage at a gig. It counts in, in, in a classroom. Um, <laughs> but we've got beer. So one of the things that you have done is you you've had a beer. Yes, like, believe beer. So how did that come about? Um, there is a company called Signature Brew. I actually, I, I imagine there still is. I don't know. I haven't had contact with them for a while. But they just do a thing where they get people to have their own beer for a bit. Um, and I've had one. Craig Finn had one. I think Ed Shikari had one. And it's just, you know, I got an email saying, do you want to have your own beer? And I went, yes. Did you get much input into like, yeah, what goes well, into it? So the, that's the other part of the story. So they took me down to this, like, it was like a disused pub that they brought, they bought and turned into a brewery or whatever. So it was, it was kind of awesome. It was like a dilapidated pub and we were the only people in there and um they had all these shot glasses full of beer and my dirty secret about beer is that my favorite beer is Coors Light um I really like cheap shit thin American beer um and and I just like something that's kind of fizzy and doesn't do very much um and I'd sort of been trying to keep this information from them because I thought that they would look down on me but you know I was talking about sort of skirting around the issue talking about like pilsners you know a light a light airy pilsner kind of thing. Um, and we spent a whole evening and they were, I was doing, you know, the, the master brewer was giving me like, 
you know, pairs of shot glasses and, you know, which one do you like more and why? And then he'd make notes. The beer they actually came up with was nice, but it didn't have very much bearing on my taste in beer. I yeah. think, I, I feel like they had a recipe ready to go <laughs> and they wanted to put a name on it. Um, the other thing that happened that night is that I brought along my friend Ben Dawson, who played in Million Dead and currently plays in Mongol Horde with me. And, um, I got pretty pissed drinking these shots of beer. Uh, Ben got so absolutely annihilated that we had to stop the cab on the way home for him to be sick. Beautiful. (laughs) I rejoice in telling that story in public. (laughs) Um, uh, But it was a fun night and it was cool having the beer and we did like a launch thing at the Flask up in Highgate and it was cool. So move us seamlessly on. Let's talk about punk music. So what was the album that you found that drew you to punk? Well, there's a complex question for me. Um, In some ways, the answer to that is in utero. Um, uh, I was got into Nirvana because that's what you did when you were 13 in 1994. Um, and I liked Nevermind. And then Inutro came out. Or, well, I think Inutro was already out and I got Inutro. And it remains easily my favorite Nirvana album, arguably one of my favorite albums of all time. And the thing that I particularly love about it, I feel like everybody who's into punk has a few punk rock moments, which are those moments when you figure out what it is that we're talking about here when you say punk, because it's not just a sound. It's a ethos as well and one of the things about Inutro for me was that I was playing in a crappy bedroom band with some friends at the time doing like ACDC covers and that and and we, I heard Inutro and it was like fuck we can make sounds like that you know we were listening to like Metallica Black Album which I still love but it's like there was no way on earth that a bunch of 13 year olds in the bedroom could make any sounds that sounded like the Black Album even if we learned the riffs the equipment was shit our playing was shit and all the rest of it Inutro is a genius album and I'm not saying that we could we sounded like Nirvana, but it was like, I can play those chords and that sounds like a drum kit in a room and that sounds like a guitar going through an amp. And do you know what I mean? It's yeah, something yeah. It was just, everything was much more tangible and approachable. So I fell in love with that record and we, I remember getting told off by our bass player's mum for playing Rape Me extremely loudly in their back room about a thousand times in a row. And she just came in, would you stop saying that? Um, but uh, So the friend's family told you off of singing Rape Me? Yeah, well, for screaming Rape Me into the microphone. Because <laughs> at the end of the song, he's like, Rape Me, Rape Me, Rape Me. Which, as a 35-year-old now, I can understand why a 13-year-old child screaming Rape Me repeatedly into a microphone would, without context might be a little distressing. But the thing is, I remember just then, I got really, really into Nirvana, and um, I just remember that Kurt Cobain talked about punk a lot, mm. and um, our drummer's uncle was the only person that we knew who knew anything about music. We read Kerrang! magazine, that kind of thing, but I remember we went to him and we said, what's punk, you know, other than Nirvana, and he went, well, Nirvana aren't punk, for a start, um, which I think is a debatable point, incidentally, yeah. but um, he, he said, well, listen to the class in Sex Pistols. Yeah. So I went to our price in Winchester, and I bought first class album and never mind the bollocks um both of which i love and controversially i think the sex pistols were at that point in history the superior band it's, it's everybody likes to hate on the sex pistols and i think it's fucking idiotic i don't i don't like to hate on the sex pistols but i think saying that the sex pistols are better than the clash is, i think i think the clash went on to become a better band yeah, okay yeah, okay but but i mean i think i think never mind the bollocks is a stone cold fucking no, it's a good album. um and and yeah i mean I, I love the clash don't get me wrong i love the clash but like i just think that um Never mind the box is a, is a masterpiece. Anyway, so I got into that, and, and I was into that, and, and then like Green Day and Offspring happened, you know, Smash and Dookie. Yeah. So that was a big thing, um, and I liked both of those records a lot, but it was only when I got into like I started going a bit deeper, and, and I got into NoFX, uh, who remain one of my all-time favorite bands. And, mine, mine as well. Yeah. Yep. Actually, the fact that I am, I can say I can't really say this without sound like I'm name dropping, but it's true. I'm quite good friends with Mike. And, um, you know, he calls me every now and again to say hi. And it's just like, fuck 
me, it's Fat Mike. Um, you know, and he's a, he's a good guy. Um, uh, my, if you put a gun to my head and ask me to pick my favorite punk album, I'd run away screaming and possibly just take the bullet because it's an impossible <laughs> question. But um, one of my contenders for that would be Everything Sucks by Descendants. Yeah. Which is just fucking perfect. It, it, I just love that album so very much. There appears to be some kind of political rally happening outside yeah. the window. That's just background noise. It's the pub. <laughs> it's the pub outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so everything sucks. I adore. And I like people, because how old are you? I'm 34. Okay, so same age, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, there was that 90s punk thing, the epitaph thing. And there was, there was an independent record store in Winchester. And the guy who ran it got to know me. And he did this thing where whenever anything came in with epitaph written on it, he put it aside for me. Um, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and in that way, I bought a lot of records, quite a few of which were quite shit. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just don't need more than one Down By Law album. I don't. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but, 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 but so I got into all that kind of stuff. Then I started doing the thing, which I feel is a lost art. And I do think that when people talk about the internet, it's easy to overdo nostalgia. But I just love the days when me and, because me and two mates, Chris and Ben, got into punk together. Right, and we um, we used to we used to cross-reference thanks lists. So we'd look at we take one at one sleeve, yeah. you know, to a Descendants record, and a sleeve to a No Effects record, and a sleeve to a um, Offspring record, and we would read through all the bands who are mentioned in the thanks list. And if there's a band that appeared on all three, we go out and buy the record. Good, and that's how we got into an awful lot of music because we just didn't know anyone who knew anything about it. Yeah, um, and yeah, so that was my intro to punk rock. When I was just a skinny lad on holiday by the sea. interesting about uh this interview right now is that i actually interviewed you 10 years ago right and in luton university holy fuck which uh was that a guy wild... what was the name of the other guy who played luke something or other uh luke pickett luke pickett yes yeah. uh, and i remember he was wearing a hoodie with no sleeves on which made me think come on mate you're either hot or you're cold <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? like, he wanted to be shifty but also be cool he he had um he had a quite spectacular mullet as I remember it. I, I don't remember, but I think I can remember at the time it was very much a mullet bringing the mullet back, but in a in an yeah. email. I, I, I don't mean way. to be rude about the guy. He was a perfectly nice guy. <laughs> so yeah, so that show uh, ten years ago, and I interviewed you then. And the thing that has always stuck with me, I've actually brought the interview with me with all my grammar, <laughs> my grammar errors, and everything okay. that was in there. But the one thing that always <laughs> struck me from that was that I asked you the question of in ten years' time where do you see yourself oh, doing shit. and you said not doing this really yeah I, I said in 10 years time do you so do you still see yourself doing this or in this industry and you said probably not oh okay right okay so 
That was me being a pessimist rather than disappointed with yeah. my station life. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's so. Yeah. So my question is: from from those ten years ago, had had there been a point whereabouts you nearly gave up? And if not, when was the point you realised, holy shit, this is this is it, this is my life now? Well, okay, we are momentarily going to talk about the graph. Yeah. Okay, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, I mean, there was there was definitely a moment after um, Sleepers of the Week is out. We did we did an album release tour for Sleepers of the Week that was kind of okay. You know, we did sort of two hundred people a night kind of thing around the UK, and then we. That was in January, as I remember it. And then in sort of May, we did another UK tour where we sort of went up a little bit venues, size-wise for venues, mm-hmm. and the same or slightly less numbers of people came. And I remember thinking to myself, ah, maybe I've had my shot. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Um, I remember like we went from doing the Borderline to doing Bush Hall. Borderline's 275, Bush Hall is 500, I think. And we had about 270 people at Bush Hall kind of mm-hmm. thing. And it was just a bit like... Yeah. Um, and the thing that redeemed it in retrospect uh, it was the songs that I'd started writing for Love Our Own Song because that was a breakthrough record for me kind of thing uh, that was when a lot more people started giving a shit because it's a better album um, uh, so but yeah there was definitely there was a moment around then when I wasn't sure and since then things have been pretty slow and steady upwards um, so the graph here's yes. the thing every musician thinks about this whether or not they think about it in these terms or whether or not they admit it I don't care, but it's true. If you, this is the nerdiest thing to talk about on a fucking podcast. If you had a graph, right, and on the, on the, remember high school maths, on the <laughs> y-axis, the upright yep. axis, you have success. And on the other axis, you have time. Every career goes up to a certain point, and then it comes down to a certain point. Um, and with the exception of, lost profits or whatever I mean you know what I mean everybody everybody's career goes up then it comes down and then it flatlines at some point which is your kind of like success for the rest of your life period I mean there there might be fluctuations later on with a comeback record or suddenly becoming cool again or or whatever but so you go up and then you come down and then you go flat and the question is somewhere on the success line there's a dotted line going across the graph that is don't have to get another job Hmm. right and so on the way up you pass that line because you quit your day job and you go off on tour and everything's glorious. But the question is, when you come down on the other side, does your flat line settle above or below that? If you see what I mean. Yeah. So, and I think everybody thinks about that to a degree. And it is really, and I know people always sound like I'm protesting too much when I say this, but it is true. It's only about three or four years ago that I decided that my flat line was probably above the not having to get another job line. Yeah. Which is a complicated way of saying that I think I can probably do this in some fashion for the rest yeah. of my life. You know, I could probably you know, book a UK tour of 500 cat venues and sell it out to the Japanese soldiers of my fan base. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 20 years time and make a living doing it. And, and, and I've spent time thinking about people like uh, Ginger Wildheart, for example, who's yeah. become a good friend of mine. And I really respect the fact he still makes a living out of what he's doing. And it's obviously not the level the Wildhearts were at their peak, but people still respect him, care about him. And he can make some, a living as a musician. I think that's fucking awesome. Side note, um, something I've learned over the years is that First of all, music isn't a competition, so just fucking get over. If you don't like a band, okay, fine. But if they're selling tickets and making people happy, life goes on. In fact, you should celebrate that fact. It's a good thing. I don't like Kasabian, but Kasabian make 10,000 people happy every time they play a show. That's a good thing. Good for them. I wish them every success. Um, and similarly, it's like there is something to be said for the fact that anybody who can make a living over a long period of time in music is worthy of a degree of respect because it's fucking hard to do. And, and like there's that thing, something I've sort of encountered a couple of times in my career is like people scoffing at bands who are big in Germany or big in Japan or whatever. And it's just like, fuck off, man. They're making a living. 
being in a band. Yeah. That's fucking great. And the fact that their music can translate in a different country right. is totally. phenomenal. Also, the fact, I mean, the fact that it's kind of a joke that like German fans are loyal. Why is that a fucking joke? One of the things that pissed me off about the UK is, is how fickle audiences in this country can be. Not oh, always, but like, yeah. you know, you'll get bands who will do one tour where they'll sell 3,000 tickets a night and then because a certain magazine stopped covering them or whatever, yeah. they'll do their next tour and there's 10 people there a night and I want to grab the other 3,000 people and be like, oh, cool, so you're showing up at a fashion show, were you? Yeah. Arseholes. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's just it's like, like a band or don't like them, don't, like, at no point in your music taste should you be checking around you to see what other people are listening to. That's fucking bullshit. It's like the question I get asked all the time, what's your guilty pleasure? I don't fucking have any because I couldn't give less of a fuck about what anyone thinks about my taste in music. Yeah. And and that's the, and that is one of the reasons why I feel that you've, like, even though you don't always play what is associated as punk music, but you've always had the attitude of, and that for me is punk, is the attitude of, yeah. I'm doing what I'm doing because I love what I'm doing. Yes. And I don't care what you yeah. think about it. My, I, I kind of settled on a definition of punk for myself. It's worth stating at this point that the world has wasted way too much breath and ink over definitions of punk <laughs> yeah. already. Like, Jesus Christ, if all of that energy had been put towards, like, curing cancer or something like that, the world would be a better place. Who gives a fuck? And also, could there be anything less punk than deciding on a definition <laughs> of punk? Yeah. Having said that, I mean, my definition of punk is, is it's about, so, <laughs> I make Chris in the background <laughs> laughing at my absolute torrent of bollocks coming out of my mouth. Um, my definition of punk is about self-creation, you know, um, and, and that's a definition that, to me, wraps in both Henry Rollins and Laura Jane Grace. You know, it's, it's about, and for me, I was, I got a scholarship to a posh school, you know, and I was put into this meat grinder that's supposed to produce MPs and lawyers. And I ran away and I joined the circus. And that's the most important thing about punk for me is that I chose the kind of person I'm going to be and the kind of values I'm going to have. Um, and on a similar level, it took me a long time to kind of figure this out. But with Rollins, I mean, the weightlifting thing is a physical version of that. It's like, I'm going to create the body I have. It's the reason I have tattoos is because I can choose what I have on my skin, you know, and it's just that it's a, it's an active self-reclamation almost do you know what I mean it's like I will not be what I'm supposed to be I will be whoever the fuck I want to be well you've actually kind of jumped to one of my questions because I actually watched your documentary uh, right. last night in on, which I said something similar right? you did yeah on Amazon Prime but you never really you never answered what I actually wanted you to answer okay. <laughs> was you said that you, uh, you you are who you who you are now not what you was meant to be yeah what was you meant to be well like I say I mean because I, I come from a middle class family I was I put up for a scholarship when I was 12 which I passed uh, which ended me up at one of the most privileged schools in the world um, and like I say that is a school particularly for the scholarship kids who are there that is designed to grind out sort of captains of industry MPs you know the establishment essentially yeah. is what I'm saying here um, and I have friends who I went to school with well acquaintances might be a better word who are doing those kind of things um, uh, I enjoyed the way you just crossed out a question um, well that's the question you're answering right now right, so okay, cool. uh, um, and, you know I, 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 and, and uh, you know I long ago got over I was full of rage about my schooling for a very long time I was very angry about it um, I'm not sure how I, I would never send my school to my child should I ever have one to private education and I think there is something fundamentally wrong with a society that predicates people's life choices on their parents' income. But um, but I'm, it's a waste of my time to continue to be angry about it for the rest of my life. Anyway, so, but yeah, I, you know, I think I was supposed to be something like that. And um, I started, did my first tour in the summer of 98 when I was 16 on a school holiday. And my parents sort of went, oh, really? <laughs> um, but it was fine. Um, and then the sort of real, and I, I used to, I, I had this one fantastic teacher who used to help me fake dentist appointments so that I could go to gigs. Um, anarchist demos, anarchist book fair, 
reclaim the streets demo stuff like that which i wasn't supposed to go to but yeah. he just said all oh, my teeth hurt um what a legend. And, yeah yeah and, and actually you know what i saw him the other day for the first time since i was at school and it was a joy because he was just like he was he was in a glorious way he was like fucking good for you man um anyway you know, so I started making these choices and involving myself in a culture that was very removed from the one that I was being educated in. And actually, one of the more disappointing moments of my childhood was when I sort of located the London hardcore scene, household name records, uh, you know, Knuckle Dust, Special Move, Nine Bar, Stamping Ground, all those kind of bands. Um, and, you know, I went to Evil Fest 1, 2, and 3 and all the rest of it. And I and, um, had an absolute blast and I had a band called Knee Joke that was me and two other guys from my school, who were the uh, Chris and Ben who I mentioned earlier. Yep. And then um, there was a moment when people found out where we went to school and half the scene like were like, fuck you, you're not welcome here. And that gutted me because to me, the point about punk was it was supposed to be a place where you were welcome. Yeah. You know, you could choose to go there and reject whatever other baggage that society might be trying to hang around to you. And as I say, you, you've, it's an elective act. It's an act of volition. Um, thankfully, uh, the other half of the scene were awesome about it. Lil from Household Name remains somebody who I will fucking take a bullet for because he quite specifically at the time just went to some of the people who give you a shit. He was like, you fucking hypocrites yeah do you know what I mean um, and uh, actually Leo from 17 Stitches was awesome about it as well who is the most like working class oi punk motherfucker ever but he was just like I've hung out with those boys and they're alright um, <laughs> which was a vote of confidence for us um, but yeah so we uh, hold on I've lost my train of thought now um, it's not about where you've come from it's about <laughs> he said quoting yeah. my lyrics right right yeah 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 yeah. i mean that is that is obviously what that line is kind of referencing in some ways but yeah so sorry sorry what i was gonna say the, a, a crisis moment in my life not in my life in, in my parents i think my parents you know didn't want me to do this they still yeah. don't really i mean my mum's now on board my dad can go fuck himself but we have no relationships or whatever but like um uh there was a moment when million dead broke up i think that my parents kind of went well that phase is over now and he can go back to law school or whatever the fuck and I started playing solo shows and my mother pretty visibly just went oh my god what are you doing not least because I'd gone with Min and Dead we could pull maybe 500 people a show and I went to playing for like 5 people a show and acquired a drug habit at the same time <laughs> um, uh, and and, it, and I was like sleeping on the floor and taking a train everywhere and it was just kind of it was pretty grotty
you came to Luton, you you came on the Thames Link. Yes. And there was like 20 people in the room. And to your credit, it's still one of my favorite gigs. Thank you very much. Mainly, like, I just love the fact that you just, you can clearly see you gave it all. And it's from that show was, I was like, okay, this guy is a guy that I'm going to follow because of his attitude towards playing this show and the fact that you gripped everyone who was there. It wasn't people who just were going there for a drink. Yeah. And if they were, they were fully committed to what you was doing on stage. Well, and I think that kind of follows up to my next question is you, you've toured everywhere and you've also done support acts and you've played for different bands, different genres of music. But I always feel like you've always won over your crowd and you may disagree, obviously. There have been a couple of exceptions to that. But, I mean, <laughs> how do you do that? How do you win over the crowd? Well, okay, there's a couple of things in here. I mean, in terms of... This is the thing, regardless of whether anybody else's opinion or how important it might be, whether or not what I do now constitutes being punk rock, I learned how to play and how to perform in punk bands. And there are days when I feel like I'm slightly... I mean, cheating's too strong a word for it, but it's like every day... You know, people can't go, my God, you guys just have the craziest live show. And I'm like, yeah, you've clearly never seen Sick of It All play. <laughs> yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? And, and essentially what I do is I play indie music like I'm in a hardcore band. And and that's a fucking neat trick. <laughs> and I get away with it. Um, but, you know, I mean, last night I was seeing Every Time I Die, and it was a bit kind of like, yeah, this is ten times more energetic than the show that I do. They're yeah. fucking all over the place. But because most of my audience have never seen Every Time I Die, they, they kind of go, oh, my God, it's the craziest show ever. Um <laughs> And therefore, I, and I went so brilliant. But like, it's but more specifically, like you know, what, that's one of the things I always enjoyed about punk rock. I love the sound of a voice cracking on the record. I love the sound of a guitar driven to the within inch of his life. I love the sound of somebody beating the living fuck out of their drums because it is that purity of intent and and uh, and I think that's fucking great and I love it. Something there have been times in my career where I've been criticised being over earnest or indeed just honest or yeah. earnest or whatever and I'm just kind of like what is the fucking point in arranging your entire life around making music and making art and then walking out on a stage and not quite meaning it fuck off yeah do you know I mean both from the point of view of the person making it and from an audience's point of view nothing irritates me more than somebody who looks like they don't really want to be there or they're not really taking it seriously it's kind of like cool I will go somewhere else I will watch another band give me the fucking guitar hmm. do you know what I mean like ugh and it's the thing that pissed me off about Britpop when I was a teenager is, is the sort of ironic detachment thing. Like, it's just like, if you don't fucking mean it, I'm not listening. Yeah. Fuck off. You know what I mean? Not least because as Britpop arrived, I discovered like the dead Kennedys. So it was just <laughs> kind of like, oh. Okay. Um, so that's the thing. Like, I mean, I don't really know how to play shows without kind of throwing in. Um, I enjoy it. It's good. It's fun. It's, it's, it's a cool way of doing it. Um, so, uh, in terms of the support band thing, I mean, it's interesting you mention that because um, uh, I, there's a lot. I, I enjoy being a support act in many ways. It's a different discipline to being a headliner. Um, it's very tangible. You walk out on stage and there's a smattering of applause, and if you walk off half an hour later and you've given people a reason to give a fuck about who you are, hmm. it's 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 a visible achievement, and that's really satisfying. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, so the Sleeping Souls, my band, um, were, I feel like we cut our teeth as a band on American sport tours. We did so fucking many shows opening for Social D, The Offspring, Flog and Molly, Dropkick Murphys, just fucking everybody, just night after night after night after night. You've got half an hour, you're on 10 minutes after doors. There's, I mean, and Social D fans are hard. I was going to say, yeah. And, and you know what? We fucking got them every day. And like, maybe not right at the beginning of the tour, but we kind of learned how to do that. And, and I think it made us the band we are today. And, and part of it is just about, um, almost like, I'm good, fuck it, I'm going to use the word, 
arrogant in a way. You walk out and you're like, this is my fucking stage. This is my fucking crowd. And and at the beginning, people go, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and by the end of it, if you pull it off, then people go, oh, yeah, okay, fine. It is your stage. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and and that's the thing. You've just got to own the room. You've just got to fucking headbutt your way to success. Yeah, doing that on a social <laughs> D tour is some balls because from what I know from those gigs is they don't take falls kindly. No, completely. Um, and yeah, I think, and we just kind of battled through it. The Flying Molly tour was really interesting because all those fucking idiots. Uh, like there were people at those shows wearing IRA t-shirts and shit. And, because, and then there's American Irish people who've never been anywhere near Ireland. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our guitar tech is from a Catholic um, Northern Irish family from Derry. He's a Catholic. He used to be in Fighting With Wire, Jetplane Landing, bands like that. Okay. Um, and, you know, he was like, if you fucking wore an IRA t-shirt in Bogside in Derry, you would be murdered in about <laughs> five minutes. Like, fuck you. Um, so, and that got quite trying. And somebody like threw a pint at me at the merch table. And it's like you're English and I'm Irish and I'm like yeah really you don't fucking sound like it <laughs> it doesn't matter um, you're a cunt well, everywhere also, in the world <laughs> also like well done you for yeah. spreading peace and fraternal love you tosser um, and and then of course you discover that none of them know anything about the situation and at all and about the horror and pain and awfulness that's been experienced there anyway um, so there were, there were hard moments on it but I just sort of feel like I slash we collectively by sheer sort of force of personality or just refusing to piss off kind of thing we made a dent in those audiences and um and i'm kind of proud of that i think we did well with it sorry i'm just realizing the time and i don't want to no no it's fine i mean i'm having a good time okay fair enough uh so i'm sure this has been thrown at you before so you you've done 2000 plus shows yeah um, I, I saw you interviewing, uh, uh, doing an interview earlier on, um, and you said like 2000 and... 2125, I think, although I'm going to check it. Metallica, since 1982, have only done 1914. You two <laughs> have only done 1930 from 1982, and obviously you are on the 2000 plus. Yeah. Are you addicted to being on the road? Yeah, okay, there's a whole bunch of shit to talk about here, not least because the last couple of years we've made some logistical changes to the way I operate. Like, we're still going to tour hard, but, like, um, we used to do 14, 15 months straight, and it was just murder. Um, and particularly when I injured my back in 2013 was a bit of a wake-up call. Yeah. Um, because I was sort of engaged in an arms race in which I was the only person competing, um, which is undignified. Uh, and it's quite macho in a way that I'm actually on closer examination don't like very much. Mm. Um so, and it was hurting me, and I think it was making me quite one-dimensional as a person. If one, if it is a human, if you just do one thing over and over again, I think you become quite boring, um, you know. Uh, and then added to that, you know, there are people in my band and crew have got kids now. I've got a cat, which isn't the same thing. <laughs> Name of the cat? Uh, Boudicat. Boudicat, okay, Named yeah. after the ancient British queen. Um, I'm a big fan of punning animal names. If I had a goat, he'd be called Goatis Redding. Um, and if I had a duck, he'd be called Quacky Chan. Why not? Uh, anyway, Quacky um, Chan. Quacky Chan would be amazing. Imagine having a duck called Quacky Chan. Horson Wells. Oh. How, how long have you thought about this? Oh, like, have you too much. Kirk Douglas. Um, like that. And my favourite, although my girlfriend has definitively told me that we are never having a pet sloth, but if I had a sloth, he'd be called David Hasselsloth. Um, and I get them a little red float. <laughs> fucking amazing. Sloths are amazing pets. They literally can't run away. They sleep for 20 hours a day. They live off bananas. They need a climbing frame and hugs. I mean, what's not to love? Do they need hugs? They do. They need hugs. If Apparently, if you have pets off, then it's sort of legally dubious. Um, but if you have pets off, you have to hug them quite a lot. Aww. 
That's a, and they smile all the time. Yeah, they do look a bit dopey. Yeah, they're fucking. My girlfriend says they look like terrifying nightmare clowns. Um, <laughs> so I guess that's the end of that. Anyway, where were we? Um, but yeah, so we are kind of sort of picking our battles a little more in our old age. I think one of the other things as well is that, um, you know, there was a moment when I was like trying to look up who'd done the most gigs and then you discovered the bluesman and like people like John Lee Hooker played three shows a day, three hundred six days a year for 50 years. I mean, it's just not beatable. Um, so mm. fuck that. Uh, and it's just, it's a bit forced after a while. Do you know what I mean? And one of the other things, and I think about this quite a lot, you mentioned the crown award earlier and I, I got the sort of that and I, I got the I got the hardest working act at the Independent Music Awards or whatever. And it is possible to work really hard and not be good. Do you know what I mean? It's not actually <laughs> yeah. a measure of quality. Yeah. Um, and so, so all of these considerations, plus the fact I'm 35, I'm no longer 25, and there are things that you can do in your 20s you can't do in your 30s. You know. Um, so we're picking our battles a little more. I mean, we are still going to tour, and I still love it, but I want to do it for the rest of my life. And with that in mind, I want to pace myself a bit. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. a marathon, not a sprint, and all that sort of crap. Having said all of that, I remember reading about Black Flag when I was a kid. And it's worth taking a moment to talk about Black Flag. I saw that you have the bars tattoo. I, I do. do too. Yeah. The thing about Black Flag is I remember I got into, going back to where we started with this, got in terms of punk stuff, you know, like kind of HMV used to sell those kind of crappy punk compilations with like Chelsea and GBH and stuff yep. on them. And then there was also, there, there was like some history of punk photo book that had Black Flag as a footnote. Um, and there was this photo of them. And what I loved about it is I was getting into this music and I was like, Christ, do I really have to have a my walk and like wear safety pins over and all this shit? And there was a photo of Black Flag and it was four dudes in thrift shop clothes with normal haircuts staring at the camera like they were going to fucking murder you. <laughs> and, and they just had 10 times more attitude than bands like GBH and Chelsea to yeah. my mind. And that was from a photo. Yeah. And I looked at that and I thought, I want to be into them. And then actually... It was my grandmother's funeral, um, and uh, it was was next to where she used to live. And I saw I was wearing, I was like 15 maybe, I was wearing my funeral suit, and I walked into the local record store. Um, I sort of ran off and ran in there, and and the guy gave me a bit of a look like, who's this dork? (laughs) And I went up to the counter, and I said, do you have anything by Black Flag? And the guy was like, fuck, I mean, yes, I do. Holy shit. Um, So, you know, I got into Flag, and, and, and then, you know, getting the van was a really important thing in my life because it was the very first book I read about music and kind of still one of the very few books I've read about music that smelt of the road. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You read a book about Nirvana and it goes, it talks about their forming and then, oh, then do shows and personal records and then here's a load of stuff about her and, and it's like, hold on, you skip the bit I'm interested in. Yeah. I wanted to, I want to know how many guitars they took on tour. I want to know how many buses they had. I want to know, do you know what I mean? That's the shit. Yeah. And getting the vans about touring at the bottom of the fucking pile. You know, in the back of the book, it lists all the tour schedules. And I used to read those as a kid. It's fucking sad to say that out loud, but it's true. And I just used to be like, I want to be one of those bands. Then the other thing that happened was when I was kind of going to and putting on shows in, in the hardcore scene in the late 90s, early 2000s, something I just couldn't help but notice, and my friend Chris will agree with this like um hello um it was was i just remember like you'd have a bill where it would be like three london hardcore bands and then walls of jericho or someone like that an american band would headline and the american band would just piss all over our bands in terms of their tightness Hmm. you know they and that's because they just come off 400 shows and like london bands would do 50 shows a year kind of thing and i mean in fairness that's because there wasn't much many more places to play and it's not necessarily a criticism of their intent or whatever, but it was just immediately apparent that the the road had made these bands much, much better than our bands. And I noticed that. 
but I feel like there are British bands like Gallows is the one that instantly comes to yeah. mind that they just toured their nuts off and well the one that comes to mind for me who we mentioned earlier Jet Plane Landing I mean so like I say so they became good friends of mine and then Cahir is actually my full time guitar technic these days but um, they were they were fucking gods to me because they did a 60 date UK tour with no days off in 2002 and that's just as many endeavors starting out and I remember just reading about it somewhere and going mother fucker I need to make friends with this band I need to tour with this band I need to be part of whatever the fuck it is they're part of and Cat has got stories about that tour now which are hilarious because he was like it was the worst thing we've ever done in <laughs> I mean, like um, they played they played the fuck they played the Shetlands do you know what I mean and it's like you know they and it, but it was like, yeah, fuck, that's how you're in. That's how to be in a fucking punk band. Um, and I, and I, that's all I ever really wanted to do. I mean, we toured medium hard, but it, I think at the time we thought we were touring hard. And then I toured much harder as a solo act, so <laughs> I learned a thing or two. What do you think is the biggest misconception about you? I will take the blame for this. I think that the vast majority of people who have an opinion about my politics have zero understanding of what my politics are. Um, uh, I'm not least because nowhere have I ever actually just sat down and laid out a, my view of politics. Mm. Also because it has changed in my public adult life, given that I've been giving interviews since I was like 18 years old. It's developed I, over that time, but it, it's frustrating to me because people are very quick to read bad intentions into my politics. I read back uh, your guardian interview. I feel it gets kind of replayed back to you all the time. It does. Yeah. And, and you know what? Let's start this by saying that I will take the blame for running my mouth and saying a bunch of stupid shit. Um, in, I was doing an interview with a friend when I'd had a few beers hmm. and I was sort of trying to be controversial or whatever, rather more successfully than I'd planned, given that it's now the bane of my existence. But I feel it's healthy that people change their political views because otherwise you end up with what's going on in America, whereabouts the, the, the Republican, the people in Alabama are about to vote in essentially a pedophile just because they don't want to vote in a Democrat. So I think it's healthy that you do change yeah. your political yeah, yeah. beliefs well, and so, not but, be... You know, like I say, what, what frustrates me is that nobody ever asks. No one ever says, what do you think? They're just going, to go, you're a cunt because you think this. And it's mm. like, well, I don't, which you might have known if you troubled to ask me. Yeah. But nobody ever asks, like ever. Yeah. Um, so... You know, and, and and to be honest, fuck them and fuck everybody. I don't, it's not my problem. I'm not a politician. It's not my problem to sit here and lay out to you what my philosophical interpretation of the world is. Um, it's just not my problem. But I have a coherent. I mean, I'm essentially a classical liberal in my politics, um, with the emphasis on the word liberal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and people misunderstand that. But like I say, on, on some levels, I don't care. But it's extremely frustrating to me that there are people who want to read, like, say, terrible motives into me. And it then feels like a thing that people have a problem with me because of where I went to school, a, a, a fact over which I have no control whatsoever. Um, and so those are the things that piss me off because to the extent that I engage in politics, I, I believe in a freer, more equal world for everybody. I think that the strong have a duty to help the weak. I think that um, we should aim for a classless society, all these kind of things. But nobody ever fucking asks <laughs> well, next time they meet you, they they can actually engage in a conversation, yeah, so, and, and not just be judgmental. Absolutely, and and you know, well, and the other thing is, well, something I this is the the as yet unfinished seventh album that will be out next year is quite political in its way, but it's political in the sense of talking about uh, common ground and talking about ecumenism and talking about trying to sort of not rush towards this division in society. I think one of the worst things happening in society right now is people t- taking pride in the fact that they cannot understand their opponent's argument. Yeah. If you cannot convincingly do an impression of your political opponent's argument, then you don't understand it and therefore you can't win an argument. 
you know what I mean? This is known as the ideological Turing test. You should be able to give a five-minute speech inhabiting your opponent's point of view. And if you can't do that, you haven't understood their point of view. So, you know, I, I'm, I, it's a record that's about these kind of things. And one of the things, I read this in a, in a piece, I think, again, I think it was Clive James thing, and it's just like, whenever you're having a political argument, take a moment to consider the idea that you might be wrong. Yeah. And, and like, it's a really excellent discipline. And I try, I'm not perfect, no one is, but I, I try really hard to do that. Do you know what I mean? And when I'm having a furious debate with somebody about politics, I always try to take a moment to consider that I'm the arsehole. If you ask any of my friends, they will say that I'm, I'm the one who will get drunk and get on their political high horse and start chastising. Uh, I, I'm happy to admit I'm quite a left-wing leaning sure. person. And I will then start going on about how the Conservatives are, are, are like slowly privatising the NHS, even though the NHS is, in my mind, is already really nearly privatised. And, and so on. But I very, I've now made a, a decision that I've deleted all my liberal friends off Facebook, because I don't want to hear them anymore and i don't just surround myself by people who agree with me well i came off facebook and my god can i not recommend that hard enough it's i'm an evangelical yeah. get the fuck off facebook it was the best thing you will ever do yeah. get the fuck off do it promise me you'll try I, i'll do it because we were talking earlier on about instagram and how much more of a nicer yeah, yeah. space it is but I, I, you know what i realized i use facebook for two things and two things only in fact, no, that's not true. I use Facebook for three things. I use it for staying in touch with friends around the world, yeah. which you can do by keeping the Messenger app alive. I haven't deleted my account, but I just use Messenger. The other two things I use Facebook for were showing off and getting into arguments with my friends, and I don't need over either of those things in my life. Yeah. It's a fucking waste of time. And I've I, honestly, I deleted the app off my phone and like closed the tab on my browser or my laptop or whatever, and within about 24 hours, I felt really a lot happier about the world. Uh, so Sorry, you- Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> nah, fucking. Uh, so you've written, as I said earlier on, over 150 songs plus. Yeah. Um, has anyone ever actually approached you for writing for them? And uh, or not, have you actually done that? No, not quite. Um, I've, I mean, I've done a collaborative record with John Snodgrass, and, and I've done a couple of co-write things here and there with friends. Yeah. Nothing major. I, I, I'm not sure how much I thrive in that environment. Um, I did at one point start trying to kind of like see if I could write some pop songs that I could sell yeah because it's not a bad way of making a living and yeah. it turns out and in a way that I find quite comforting I can't because I'm <laughs> incapable of writing something that I don't care about yeah um, and it was quite nice to discover that yeah. you know I mean I just sat down and tried to write like a sort of Taylor Swift song and I couldn't do it like I mean I mean and I should add by the way that it's a hard thing to write a pop song that, that's, that's that good but I just mean in terms of sort of writing something that was sort of mainstream and and um you know, maximalist in its appeal and all that kind of thing. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And anything I finished, I just wanted to use for myself. Yeah. Do you know, it, it, so yeah. it didn't really work. I mean, you know, like anybody else in my shoes, I'm really, really, really dying for the day when some new pop act decides to cover one of my old songs as their big breakthrough single because then I get paid a lot of fucking money without doing any work. So that's so, nice. So you waiting for like a John Lewis ad? Well, yeah, I have been asked to do a John Lewis Christmas ad. Really? And I said no. For a number of reasons. First of all, because I think that kind of like machine output of acoustic covers of old rock songs has get it's got it's fucking had its day. Yeah. Now, uh, and I know I've done a few of those myself, but fuck, man. <laughs> um, and also, it's funny. Like, I mean, it's just not really worth it. You get a shit ton of a program for doing an advert, which I have mixed feelings about the value of that or not. But you, because it's not your song, you don't get any publishing on it. So it's like you suffer the slings and arrows of Twitter. Yeah. And you don't even go home with a nice paycheck, so what's the fucking point? <laughs> hey, yeah, hey, yeah, friends and Romans, countrymen, hey, yeah, hey, 
skins and journeymen. Hey, yeah, hey, yeah, my sisters and my brethren, the time is coming near. You do have a passionate fan base. Yes. And I feel that's because you are, you're very open. You have your email address on your website. Yeah. You're happy to do podcasts like this. Yeah, yeah I'm enjoying You this. talk to uh, people when you go out after a show. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite videos is actually, I say we, but uh, for people who don't know about his podcast, I used to work on the punk show with Mike. And Mike recorded you, I think, in a car park in wherever, in I think it was L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just talking to fans. And then I think you... <laughs> Mike gave you a an accord not an accordion harmonica and you just started playing it and then some fans came around and then you started doing like an impromptu show that's something that I've always associated with you is your openness with with the fan base so why is that so important to you and what are the drawbacks from it as well Um, well I mean it centers around the fact that I hate the word fan because it smells of Marie Antoinette to me um, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, oh, the f- we're doing it for the fans. Like, fuck you. Do you know what I mean? Like, when I'm not on tour, I go to gigs. And I listen to records and I read music magazines or blogs or whatever the fuck it is these days. And um, I don't consider myself any different from the people in the audience of my shows. Or at least not by definition. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And, and what I loved about the very first hardcore show I ever went to, hardcore as opposed to punk, um, was an agnostic front show. And... Um, I remember the fact the first band finished and they just like packed up their shit and then just jumped over the front of the stage and the next band jumped up out of the crowd. And it was this very visual demonstration of the fact that we were a community having conversation with each other as opposed to one class of people talking down to another class of people. And that's the thing. There's a sort of... That kind of rock and roll idea of stardom is very sort of um, hierarchical to me in a way that I, I find unpleasant. Yeah. I think it's shit. And, and, and you know... The other thing is, and I mean, to get momentarily a bit philosophical, the sort of privilege and snobbery of the place where I was educated, um, which I hated at the time and indeed still do now, I think the thing, I like to think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I like to think that what that taught me to do was to take every single person as they come, because that's exactly what people at that school don't do. Do you know what I mean? They want to know where you, what your parents do for a living and where you're from and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. And it's a form of prejudice that at the edges tinges into racism and stuff like that. But it's like, it became a point of principle for me and still is that every single person I meet is an entirely their own human being they're an individual about whom I know nothing until I know anything about them and and it doesn't matter who they are or where they're from or what they believe or who they fuck or what colour their skin is or whatever and I try really hard to subscribe to that um, and I feel that's a lesson I learned from my education yeah um, so you know I try really hard you know if somebody comes up on a show it's just like cool hi uh, you know, be on a level. Uh, the, the other thing is, there's a practical level to it as well. It's really fucking awkward when somebody's treating you like you're on a pedestal. Yeah. I really hate it because it makes me feel really, really uncomfortable. And the very, first thing I always try and do in that situation is just fucking knock it down. It's just like, cool, it's cool, it's cool, man. Let's just hang out rather than like shaking and signing autographs and shit. Let's just have a beer. 
I, I think that's just because like they, they like you you spoke about it earlier on with Fat Mike or Mike yeah uh, like it's, it's someone that you've like or Fatty oh, <laughs> I'm not saying that uh, <laughs> that's what people call him it's fine but it is it like it's someone that you you feel like you know but you don't really know them sure. so that like, you're very like intimidating and you don't want to meet a guy and or a girl and they be a dick and then that just ruins everything so you yeah. try and make in everything which case so I'd avoid meeting Mike because Mike takes great joy in pissing people off um, he's told. a lovely man I'm not saying a bad thing about him but fuck me does he enjoy ruining <laughs> people's taste like that um, I mean it's, the second half of your question there like in terms of the impact it can have on my life yeah there are days when people kind of decide they know everything about me from my songs and it's kind of like uh, no you don't do you know what I mean and like yeah. you know people come up to me and kind of they're kind of like you know they like oh, fuck I, when I, I was going out with a girl called Isabel and I wrote a song about Isabel and people come up to me and say how's Isabel and I'm like who the fuck are you yeah. do you know what I mean like get your hands out of my life motherfucker you know um, but the thing that's important to remember though is that when all those situations the intention is good I think it's really important to remember that do you know what I mean? And like, there have definitely been days when people have pissed me off um, because of crossing boundaries or whatever. But ninety nine percent of the time, intentions are good, and I think it's really important to remember that. Uh, I know you need to be on stage soon, so yes, um, very much. Soon. Yeah. So let's wrap this up. So twenty eighteen, what are you looking forward to? The most? Uh, well, the main thing for me is the next album, which will be out in hopefully April next year. It's not quite finished yet, but it's nearly there, and it's going to fuck with people a bit because it's very different. It's kind of a political dance pop album. <laughs> I've, I've heard. I, like, all the interviews um, is, is, is about to change. Like we, We're doing a different sound. And one of my questions was, is the reason that you released the best of is because you're putting everything to bed and you're starting I, I wouldn't fresh. say to bed, but I mean, that is definitely part of the motivation was to kind of be like, here, here in phase one. I'm not going to stop playing any songs live or anything yeah. like that, but just there is a bit of a left-hand turn coming. Um and I don't know whether people are going to like it or hate it. Probably a bit of both. Um, but at the same time, like I think it, this is something I feel that's really important to stress all the time. I make music for myself. And anybody who tells you they make music for anybody else is, is either lying or they're utterly artistically compromised. If your target audience isn't your own best judgment, then you're full of shit. And, you know, it is a great joy to me that people over the years have enjoyed what I do. I think that's great. But if they didn't, I wouldn't give a fuck and I wouldn't do it differently. You know, and I've made this album because the album that I wanted to make, and I and I know that some people are going to go, oh, it's, I hate it, it's different from the other thing, and it, to which I go, oh, that's a shame, but so fucking what? I wasn't making records, and that's the thing, and it's it's kind of sad to say, but it's like I wasn't making records for you when you did like me. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Our tastes happen to coincide, but that's it. Well, let's leave it at that because I know you need to show off and I've got many yes, more I questions. But let's do this again sometime. Yeah, and, I've um, really enjoyed this. I'm glad, man. I'm Excellent. glad. So thank you anyway. My pleasure. Because we're all so very 21st century. You're probably listening to me on some kind of portable stereo. Maybe you're sitting on the back of the bus. Or it's running up your sleeve and you're across from your boss Or you're sitting in your bedroom on your own with the lights down low I'd like to teach you four simple words So the next time you come to a show You could sing those words back at me Like they're the only words that you know I want to dance I want to dance 
I want lust and love and a smattering of romance But I'm no good at dancing And yet I have to do something Tonight I'm gonna play it straight I'm gonna take my chance I want to dance go episode four in the bag thank you to frank for taking the time to talk to me i hope to speak to him again in 2018 uh go pick up his new best of album songbook from all good record stores i don't even know if there is a good record store anymore as i said at the top of the show my interview with frank took place before the nick alexander trust memorial concert nick sadly died in the uh, paris attack at the uh, bataclan in 2015 during the eagles of death metal show where he was working on the merch stand. The trust was set up in his name to fund musical instruments for small charities and community groups in the UK. If this sounds like something you would like to support or get involved in, then go to the nickalexandramemorialtrust.com where you will find all the information on how you can help. That's it for me. Don't forget to rank and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and all other podcast formats. Follow the pod on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Punks and Pubs. Tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, and don't forget, if you go to a punk show, if someone falls down, you pick them right back up. That's it from me. I will see you in a couple of weeks. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.